Alright, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Salatu wassalamu ala rasulina wa la alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Oh, Arif is there, yes. Imam Zaid Shireen, yeah. Imam Zaid was first. They responded, sorry Zoom people, I neglected you. Uh, let's see here. Alright. So, you guys here can't see it. So, you have to kind of focus. The Zoom people can see it. Um... Eventually, this will get published, um, you know, but it's uh, it's not, I think it's ready, but I just haven't put it up yet. I feel like I need to read it another 10 times before I do that, even though we've been sitting on this translation for literally at least a year now, so, but still feel like <laughs> a little bit anxious about putting this one out there, but it is what it is. Alright, Bismillah. Okay. So, first things first. This is a translation of a small piece of a poem by Imam al-Dardir. Imam Abu al-Barakat, Ahmed al-Dardir. And uh, basically, to, to take you all back, some of you, some of the Zoom people will remember. I think this was the first text that we ever studied in the Majlis, if I'm not mistaken. When we very first started, like 2000, end of 2016, early 2017, we were meeting in Uncle Shahid's house. And we used to make a little bit of dhikr and then we'd have a lesson. And the lesson was from this book. And the book is called An Kharidatul Bahiyya, The Illustrious Pearl of Imam Dardir. Uh, the Kharida is a very famous uh, intro level aqidah text. Intro, t intro to advance, depending on which commentary you're reading. But the text itself is intro, and then his commentary would take it to the medium level. And then if you read like the Hashia of Imam al-Sawi or uh, Sheikh al-Bakhit al-Muti'i or others, then you would kind of take it to like advanced level. So this is like the, it's a very foundational text in Aqidah. The end of the Aqidah text, he talks about, Tasawwuf. We're just going to use the word since we're already falling into the ocean of uh, slander anyways. So uh, the, uh, the end of the text talks about Tasawwuf. And he says what he means by it and so on and so forth. And the reason why he does that is because the, uh, the amali side of Aqidah is Tasawwuf. So the, the, the practical side of Aqidah is spirituality, Islamic spirituality. So like it's one side of the coin is what we believe about God and the other side of the coin is our experience with God. And so he talks about, he, so he puts it in the end of the text. He talks about things that you already know about like fear and hope and patience and gratitude and everything that you talk about in these things, right? Uh, Tawbah, I think there's like 10 things that he points out. Um, so there's gratitude, there's fear, there's hope, there's toba, there's following true teachers, and a number of other things. You can look it up. I think there's a translation out there. In any case, this part that's, that, that's in this translation that we're going to publish, inshallah, and that I had initially put the title of false sheikhs and true sheikhs on, but one sheikh, he reached out to me, and he told me there's a problem with this, and that is that you made it a dichotomy. So someone could be not a true sheikh, but not a false sheikh too. Like maybe they haven't reached the level of being a true sheikh, but they're still like a good, decent person. 
and they they may not have reached they're not false so be careful of the dichotomy so i changed the title to imam abu barakat al-dardir on the qualities of a true sheikh so that way it's a little bit more gradiented um so this is his commentary on half of a line of the poem the line in the poem is where he said rahimahullah and follow the way of the righteous scholars basically it's not a long piece it might take us a couple of sessions we'll see in addition to the i did the translation and it, we wanted to make it a group majlis teachers effort so i did the translation and ustad fuad did the biography of imam dardir and my wife wrote a concluding reflections we'll call it concluding reflections uh, also notable about Imam Dardir is he is the topic of Sheikh Walid's PhD. So Sheikh Walid, who was with us last week at the retreat, his his PhD was on uh, his you know his PhD thesis was on Imam Dardir, um, and this was the first text that we taught. Okay, so this is it, it, it's like a uh, it's a very beloved text to us, and also Imam Dardir himself represents to to us kind of like how should i say kind of like the in some ways like the pinnacle of the tradition not that he was the best of the people who came but that he represented like all of the facets of what was what came to be known as like a true scholar someone who mastered all of the various disciplines someone who was well respected amongst the people someone who was there with the poor and stuff like that helped the oppressed someone who was a great spiritual master someone who was very brave in standing for the truth um, and so on so and and like that really is like the essence of what we say when we say that the scholars are the heirs of the prophets we're not talking about like any random person who graduated a program we're talking about someone who really has all of these qualities someone else that comes to mind uh, when we talk about Imam al-Dardir, always the Sheikh al-Rayyan, Allah yarhamu, and then always Sheikh Imad Effet, Allah yarhamu. So these people, to, to me, I shouldn't talk on everyone else's behalf, but to me, these are like, when we talk about the inheritance of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this is what we're talking about. So I'll read the translation, I'll read everything here word by word. It starts with a little intro and then there's the, the biography. So we'll start with that. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Qala al Al-Mutarjim Although that's a problem Because is the Mutarjim now the translator Or the one who wrote the bio The translator Ghafarallahu lahu Wa'afallahu anhu Wa'tajawaz an sayyatihi Wa'satarallahu ayyubahu Hafidhullah In the end of the famous poem of, a poem of Al-Imam al-Sayyid Abu al-Barakat al-Dardir The illustrious pearl The author addresses the foundations of spiritual rectification According to the teachings of Islam the author himself was a well-known and respected scholar, worshipper of the highest caliber, and a man of tasawwuf. In the footnote I said, as a community we need not fear the word tasawwuf. In fact, this term and idea existed in the Dictionary of Islamic Terminology from very early on and was embraced within the guidelines of Aqidah and Sharia, which will come, uh, which will come by Muslim scholarship. Yani the conversation on Aqidah and Sharia will come. Deviations and excesses from those who claim a connection to Tasawwuf do not take away from the truth of the concept and its centrality to how we understand our faith. Okay, so that's the footnote. If you have any questions about anything at any point, please feel free to ask. Okay. Uh, among the things that he addresses in this section is a commentary on the qualities of a true sheikh. 
In the footnote, it says the sheikh refers here to someone who is able to provide spiritual guidance and rectification for his or her followers, not what we commonly call anyone who has a college-level Islamic education. So uh, this is the first issue that we have to address. Okay? When we use the word sheikh, we can mean any number of different things by that. And there are different kinds of sheikhs. There is what they call sheikh al-ta'alim, and there is Shaykh al-Tarbiyah. And then there are some who are Shaykh al-Ta'alim and Tarbiyah. So there's a Shaykh who's a Shaykh of education only. Meaning they've mastered a certain sort of uh, educational curriculum. And they're able to convey those teachings. Okay. And that's the Shaykh of Ta'alim. It's a Shaykh of education. The Shaykh of Tarbiyah is different. The Shaykh of Tarbiyah is the one who has also mastered those things. But they have a specialized knowledge that helps the person in their journey to Allah. They're able to take the person and help them in their journey to Allah. That's, that's their role. And this is actually one of the roles of the Prophet ﷺ, as mentioned in the Qur'an. Right? I remember, like I used to, before this concept clicked in my head, I used to read the verse and I used to feel like there's something missing from our commentary on this verse. Okay? Because the verse says, Okay, I'll translate it right now. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. Feel, feel free, feel comfortable, sit wherever you like. Get something to eat, something to drink. No worries. Uh, so the verse, it says that God is the one who sent to the people a messenger from among themselves. And uh, he, and this messenger reads to them or recites to them his verses, God's verses, the Quran, and yuzakihim, and purifies them, and teaches them the book and wisdom, the Sunnah, even though before that they were in error. Okay. So, what is one of the roles specifically mentioned of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam here? Is that he purifies the people? It's a very interesting description, right? Like you ever. We always talk about it like, yeah, tazkiyah is part of the religion, purif spiritual purification, rectification is part of the religion, so on and so forth. But it's not just saying that. Like, it's saying that the Prophet actually did this to them. He actually helped the people to become closer to Allah, to take care of their, their diseases and their sicknesses and stuff. He helped them to deal with that. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, uh, this is one of the descriptions. So, why am I saying all of this? Because when we're talking about here, like... We have to distinguish between these two. There is someone who can teach you some material, and there's someone that can guide you in life. They're not always the same person. Sometimes they're the same person, sometimes they're not the same person. Sometimes the person who is very well educated will end up in the position of giving that life guidance to everyone. Tell them this is how you should act with your family, this is how you should do this, this is how you get over your issue with patience, this is how you have more gratitude, so on and so forth. But they're not always actually qualified to do that. Okay? At at the level of like this capital Sheen Sheikh that we're talking about here. Alright, so this is a very uh, this is for the American Muslim community, this is very murky water that we're in right now. So like I said, if you have any questions, feel free to ask them. We might have to like uh, put some of them to the end, but I w I'm trying to take it step by step so that we, you can fall. Everyone can be on the same page, inshallah. And I've I've touched on this before, like the idea 
it just it, it gets really muddled so like anyone who's the imam because we, we love people we respect them we you know appreciate them whatever so I'll take the, take anything to them they're like I have this problem like I can't figure out how to do such and such and then maybe they're not able to do that like we're holding them we're giving them a position that maybe they, they don't have and there's a gradient like I said in the beginning there's a gradient just because they don't have like the level of the true sheikh doesn't mean they don't have anything and then there's also the ones that are just, you know, we'll get to that too. There is much conversation in the American Muslim community around the idea of fake sheikhs and cases of spiritual abuse. As such, we felt that this small section may be valuable for those who understand the need for spiritual mentorship, but also recognize the very real potential dangers in such a relationship. Okay, so this point I've made it before as well. Uh, anytime, this is not specific to a religious teacher. Okay, anytime that we're close to someone, we have we're now in a position where they can hurt us at some level okay it's a little bit scary if you think about it but if we're close to someone we're necessarily in a position where they can hurt us the question is have i put that trust in the right place okay so hopefully in our relationships like our with our children with our parents with our with our spouses ideally those are relationships that lend to the possibility of great hurt, but don't end up doing that. They end up being relationships that because of that potentiality, they also are relationships of great benefit. Because there's, there's a level of vulnerability that's necessary there. Okay? It's like, uh, I, I always mention the line from Common, the famous American poet, Common, from Chicago, who said, I want to be the one that makes you the happiest and hurts you the most. And it's a song about love. Is he actually saying that he wants to be the one that hurts the, the girl the most or the woman the most? No. But he's saying that necessarily what comes along with making you the one that makes you the happiest is necessarily comes along with that, the possibility that I'm also the one who can hurt you the most. Okay? So this is a general idea. Now you take this and say, what is the most important thing? Theoretically, what is the most important thing in our life is our relationship with God. This... Uh, the very potential danger of this is that I'm going to someone and I'm believing that this person is going to help me in my relationship with God. It's a very vulnerable position, right? So I have to be smart about the way that I do that. I have to think about it. I don't just like, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You don't have to throw everything in. You don't have to leave all cautiousness and so on and so forth. And it'll come up as we continue. The entirety of the relevant section is the author's commentary on half a line of his poem wherein he said Rahimahullahu ta'ala wa nafanullahu yahu bi ulumihi fi darin ameen wa tabi' sabil al-nasikin al-ulama and follow the way of the nasikin the ulama which we'll get to when we get to it. What makes this section so relevant and interesting is that the author was someone who was speaking from within the tradition of tasawwuf and understood the importance of a real shaykh. In fact, he was basically unanimously agreed upon by the great people of knowledge and piety of the time to have been one. At the same time, his comments on the topic are coming within a work that he wrote on Islamic theology, which will later become a standard primer for studying the topic in schools such as Al-Azhar. So we cannot say that he did not understand Aqidah. This is a common thing that comes up when we talk about Tasawwuf, right? Someone will say, oh, these people who talk about Tasawwuf, they just say these things because they don't know anything about their Aqidah is wrong. They don't know anything about Allah, right? He literally wrote the textbook on Aqidah. Right? Like this is coming in the textbook on Aqidah. It's in the, it's in the end of the same textbook, right? Um, 
which is a common refrain against those scholars who engage in this field of exploration. He was also a great scholar and commentator in the Maliki Madhab, authoring works there that would become standard textbooks for the study of the school. His comments give us insight into the development of Islamic thought, its main areas of study, and how to approach the important question that is at the center of this se selection. Preceding the translation is a biography of the Imam authored by Ustad Fuad and Gohari, Hafidhullah. After the selection, there is a reflective essay written on the topic by Sheikh Muslim al Permo, Hafidhullah. May Allah grant us tawfiq and give us good in all affairs. Amin. Biography. Now, as a side note, biographies are really important. I think that, like, a lot of, um, for example, like, mm, I don't know if this is a good example, but bear with me for a second. There's a reason. Like, there's a lot of critique sometimes around hadith. Can we trust hadith? Can we not trust hadith? Is it reliable? Is it not reliable? A lot of shade thrown on hadith, so on and so forth. And there are valid reasons in some cases to say that and to ask those questions and to say like, okay, so what is, what is going on here? Is this really all trustworthy and so on and so forth? Those are reasonable questions. But we would ask the question with a different tone if we knew the biographies of the people who did this work. Like if we j if if we just knew who Al Bukhari was and who Muslim was and Nasa'i and Abu Dawood and Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah, and we read their lives and we understand what they did and what went into their work, it's not that we don't ask the same question. We might ask the same question. We're just going to ask it a little bit differently. Like okay, I recognize that this person literally spent his entire life from his childhood to his old age traveling everywhere and memorizing everything he get his hands on and asking questions and debating and critiquing. And he was really much closer to the time of the Prophet them and so on and so forth. Like, at least we understand what we're dealing with. Okay? And uh, there's a lot of important questions that should be asked. If one is going to study, one is going to learn, one is going to try to engage with this religion and the time and place that we live in, there are important questions to be asked. But when we know a little bit about the biographies of people, then at least we can do it with a little bit of adab. And you see this in community too, right? Like if you think about sometimes you might dis disagree with someone. You don't know anything about them. You don't know them. You just met them. You're going to disagree with them probably a little bit more harshly than you would if you're talking to someone who you really know and you respect. You're just going to like pose it differently because there's a little bit something there. You, you're going to be like, wait a second. Like I disagree with this person right now, but I know them. Like I know where they're coming from. I know where they studied. I know what they did. I know why they like I know a little bit about them to be like, hmm, let me understand first where they're coming from before I just like, you know, get into an argument. Uh, take it to that level, so on and so forth. So the biography is important. Imam Abu Barakat Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Ahmed ibn Abu Hamid al-Adwi al-Dardir came from a pious family and a community known for producing Islamic scholars. He was born in the upper Egyptian village of Beni Adi on the outskirts of present-day Asyut in 1127 after Hijra, 1715 of the Common Era. So he's not that long ago, right? He was born about 300 years ago. It's not that long ago. And it's a, it's a long time ago in, this, in, in the framework of American history. Uh, it's not a long time ago in the framework of Islamic history, right? Like 300 years is actually pretty recent. Um, by American history, I mean the history of the United States of America, not the lands that are uh, wherein the United States of America uh, occupied. I think that's an accurate term. Um, 1715. CE. 
The village of Bani Adi received its illustrious name after the Banu Adi tribe of the Quraysh who settled there. Thus, Ad-Dardir's noble lineage returns to the second caliph of Islam, Amir al-Mu'mineen Umar ibn Khattab. His father, Muhammad ibn Ahmed al-Dardir, who died in 1726, was a pious man who had a strong attachment to the Qur'an. He taught Qur'anic memorization and recitation locally and was held in high regard by the townspeople who considered him a saintly figure. Ad-Dardir recounts numerous saintly miracles seen not only by his immediate family, but often by the locals regarding his father. So here's another example of like uh, the agitation of our community when it comes to like ideas and concepts and things. Like when you say the word saint, oftentimes in the Muslim community, people start to get anxious. Why? Like we we don't need to understand and posit our entire existence as in contrast to someone else. This is what it comes down to. Like a lot of how we've understood Islam in America is it's not like we're not the West, which is just complete nonsense in the first place. <laughs> like there's no reason to do that in the first place, you know. Like, oh no, they're not acting very Muslim, they're acting really Western. What exactly does that mean? Like if you're if you're a Muslim who's been born and raised in the West, you should be acting Western. Like that's that's where you're from. That's that's not a sign of religiosity. You know, sometimes people are like, Well, I don't do that because that's what the non that's what like you know, I don't know. Like, how can you wear a tie? Doesn't a tie look like a cross or something? Like, what are you saying? It's just a, it's a tie. People wear ties. You know, you have a wedding ring on your finger. Isn't that what the non-Muslims do? Okay, like, what does that have to do with anything? You, know, you can wear a wedding, wedding ring on your finger. Uh, same thing we do when it comes to, like, this whole... We've posited a lot of how we understand Islam in America as we're not the Catholics. We don't have the hierarchy that the Catholics have. We don't have the saints. We don't have all of these things. We don't. It's like a, it's a Protestant Islam, <laughs> which is. It's actually like if you look at it, there's modern movements in the, in Islam that are very Protestant in their nature. They're like very get rid of all of the tradition, get rid of all the saints, get rid of all of these things. But like if we say saint, we just mean a wali. And the idea of a wali or the awliya is part of our aqidah actually. It's in Imam al-Tahawi's, uh, someone was asking me earlier about the aqidah tahawiyyah. The aqidah of Imam al-Tahawi, he mentions it in there. That we believe in the, saint, in the miracles of the saints. So this is, it's actually, it's like everyone agreed on this. It's not a matter of dispute. That there's people who are close to God and by way of their closeness to God, God made miraculous things happen on their hands. That's not, that's not an issue. I mean, we do believe in miracles. It's, they're in the Qur'an too. Right? They may be hard for us. We've, we went over this recently when we talked about Isra and Mi'raj in the Burda. Right? Like it may be hard for us as, as modern people to work through this a little bit, but we believe in it. Okay? So anyways, he's a saintly figure. His mother related a famous account to a dardir that she often saw a light emanating from his father's room, as if a candle was lit, in the darkest hours of the night. When his father was asked about this light, his reply was that it was from the light of offering salutations and benedictions upon the Prophet So there's a light coming from his room, but there's no light in his room. 
So she's asking him, what is this light coming from? And he's saying, this light is from saying, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Saying a lot of salawat on the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ad-Dardir also relates that his father refused to accept any compensation for teaching the Book of God and would often provide food and shelter for his students who did not have much. Allah give us the ability to do this. Amen. Imam Ad-Dardir was greatly influenced by his, his community and the number of highly esteemed scholars hailing from his village. Interestingly enough about him not taking money for teaching. Uh, the early Hanafi school, it's not permissible to take money for, for an act of worship, like leading prayers, leading Jumas, making adhan, teaching even. You're not allowed to take any compensation for it financially. The later scholars of the Hanafi school, they allowed it for the preservation of the religion out of necessity, not because on principle it's allowed. <laughs> so, you know, may Allah give us wealth from where we don't know so that we don't have to take money for these things. Inshallah, I mean. Imam al-Dardir was greatly influenced by his community and the number of highly esteemed scholars hailing from his village. One such scholar, known both for his erudite knowledge and his principled stance in confronting the Mamluk emirs, was Sheikh Ali al-Sa'idi. Presiding over the dormitory of Al-Azhar for the students of Upper Egypt, Asaidi had many dis disciples who followed his lead of both highly advanced scholarship and an unwavering commitment to intercede on behalf of the townspeople and addressing their grievances with the ruling elite. This high regard for both principled social engagement and scholarly pursuit became a hallmark of the scholars of Upper Egypt. So it wasn't, what's, what's amazing about this model is that these are not, these are extremely scholarly people who are not ivory tower scholarly people, which, you, which sometimes you do find, right? We shouldn't make assumptions, but sometimes you do find that. There were people who like, and, and kind of like by the way Al-Azhar is, <coughs> if you stay in that area, it's difficult to be kind of ivory tower. You could go there and just teach and leave and you could still be ivory tower. But if you're going to like actually be in Al-Azhar and Darb Al-Ahmar and Hussein and like all these areas, <laughs> Inevitably, you have to deal with the people at some level because it's like a very shabby area, which I feel like there's no good translation for the word shabby. Is there any good translation for the word shabby, the Muslim or any Arabic speakers? I, I, I feel like any time I try to find a word, it's not the right word. It doesn't, it doesn't do exactly what you need it to do. But it's like you're with the people. You're with the people. It has like a s social element to it. Anyways. Huh? <laughs> Your kushri, yeah. You have to go. You have to go and eat kushri at kushri Nigmat Hussein, which is right across from <laughs> Jamia Al Azhar. <laughs> and you have to go down the street, and you have to go to Masjid Al Hussein. You have to get your asir from behind Masjid Al Hussein. Like these are these are things that are like daruri. They're necessary to the experience of the person. Anyways, he was. They were known for this. Uh, raised by and having kept company with such immensely pious, principled, and scholarly class, it is no surprise that Ad-Dardir was influenced to study sacred knowledge at a young age. He received his initial education of Quranic memorization and recitation from his father, and his love for studying the sacred disciplines continued to grow. After completing his primary education in Bani Adi, Ad-Dardir traveled to Cairo to further pursue his studies at Al-Azhar University. There he attended many of the highly acclaimed study circles of renowned Islamic scholars of his time, and would eventually earn the distinction of participating in the circles of Hadith scholars Sheikh Ahmed al-Sabbagh, uh, the Sheikh al-Azhar Shamsuddin al-Hifni, and the renowned Maliki jurist and theologian Sheikh Ali al-Sa'idi, 
who we mentioned earlier. Dardir would further extend his relationship to both Sheikh al-Hifni and Sheikh al-Sa'idi who became his two principal teachers and who constituted his most formative training. Imam Dardir would eventually take Sheikh al-Hifni as his spiritual guide by whom he was initiated into the Khalwati Tariqah. Oh man, now I have to make lots of comments. He likewise studied extensively with Sheikh Ali al-Sa'idi who regarded Imam al-Dardir as his greatest pupil. Both scholars would eventually pass their prospective rank onto Imam al-Dardir making him Mufti of the Maliki school Rector of the Residence uh, Hall College for the students from Upper Egypt and one of Sheikh Al-Hifni's most notable spiritual successors, Khulafa. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. <coughs> so it says that he took Sheikh Al-Hifni as his spiritual guide by whom he was initiated into the Khalwati Tariqah. So, first things first. So we talked in the beginning about Sheikhs of Ta'alim and Sheikhs of Tarbiyah Sheikhs of Education and Sheikhs of Let's say Spiritual Rectification Okay This idea as a concept Was known from the very beginning of Islam From the very very beginning But they say that this Sufism Tasawwuf in the beginning Was a reality Without a name And then it became a name without a reality Okay Focus on this expression It's a very important expression it was a reality without a name, and then it became a name without a reality. So what does it mean? What is the whole point of tasawwuf? You get like a million different definitions. One of my favorite definitions is, uh, That it is to be honest and true with the true, with God, and to have good character with the people. It's a very simple definition, right? So what does it mean? It means that the person has gotten rid of all of as many of as much of the bad stuff inside that they could get rid of and they've put as much good stuff as they can so that they embody the teachings of this of the religion so there's people that teach the religion and there's people who embody the teachings of the religion and they're known for like this is their area of specialization uh, this was understood even in the time of the imams like they say that the four imams abu hanifa malik shafi'i so on and so they had sheikhs they say that the Shaykh of Abu Hanifa was Imam Jafar al-Sadiq. Allahu alam. But the point is that they had, even though they were like the highest level people in all of history, they deferred to other people when it came to their spiritual training. So this is the first point. In this, in this period, first 500 years of Islam, there's no such thing as a tariqah, this word that was used here, tariqah, uh, a Sufi order, or a, uh, I guess that's the word that's usually used in like... English translations and stuff Sufi order It's a funny word but I guess it works Tariqah literally means a path Like it's, it's, the, it's the way that you take So but in the first 500 years There's no concept like this There's an understanding that there's people who You can take that from You know And then there's people that you take other things from Again like there's people you learn theology from There's people you learn fiqh from There's people you learn tasawwuf from there's people you learn hadith from, there's people you learn Quran from. Every field has its specialist, and you go to the specialist in that field, but there's no tariqah. Like this formal kind of like, this is our path, and it has these followers, and so on and so forth. It's more like a student-teacher relationship. It becomes more formalized in the time of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani is a contemporary of Imam al-Ghazali. Actually, the year that Imam Ghazali left Baghdad and went on his like spiritual 
journey, you could say, is the year that Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani entered Baghdad. He's from Jilan, which is off which sea? I want to say the Caspian. Um, and at 18, he went to Baghdad to study more. Like he studied in his town. Generally, people do that. They study in their town, then eventually they go to the bigger city, they study more. So he left Jilan and he went to uh, Baghdad. Long story short, the point is the idea of tariqas or Sufi orders or whatever begins roughly with him. There might be some debate about it, but roughly with, with his time, 500 after Hijra. And then after that, you start to have like different teachers who um, have this like set of teachings that they emphasize in one's spiritual growth, and people follow them, and they have a student-teacher relationship, whatever. So you have the Qadri Tariqa, which is named after Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani. You have the Shadri Tariqa, which is named after Sheikh Abdul Hassan al-Shadri. You have the Naqshbandi Tariqa. You have the Chishti. You have the uh, Rifai. You have any number of different paths. Some of them more true, some of them less true. Some of them more true initially, some of them change over time. Like today you probably have like, I don't know, thousands of Qadri Tariqas. You know, this person's a Shaykh in the Qadri Tariqa. You can become their disciple. You become a Qadri. He's supposed to help you get closer to Allah. Or she's supposed to help you get closer to Allah. There's probably like around the world, I don't know how many. Are all of them necessarily correct and true? Not necessarily. Do some of these things, do some of these groups do totally weirdo things? Yes, absolutely. Are some of these people actually like true and sincere? I believe so. So, you know, we have to have some knowledge to be able to see like, okay, what is true from what is false? Like what is, that's the whole point of this, okay? So when he says that he's, he, he was initiated into the Khalwati Tariqa, that's one of them, Khalwatiya. Khalwatiya actually, if I'm not mistaken, the founder of the Khalwatiya was originally from Afghanistan. Allah help the people there. Uh, he likewise studied, I already said that. So he took on these positions. His career. Imam Dardir's former career as Mufti and Rector began around the year 1189-1775. After the passing of his master, Sheikh Ali al-Sa'idi, he taught the disciples of theology, jurisprudence, hadith, tafsir, and the Arabic disciplines in the mosque of Al-Azhar. A close friend and student of Imam Dardir, the Indian polymath Murtada Zabidi, wrote a, uh, wrote a biogra biographical entry for a Dardir describing him, amongst other things, as unequaled in his time in the rational and transmitted disciplines. So this, there needs to be like a moment of pause on this, just for a, a second, so that... I, I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's kind of hard to like... Like this was a time when Al-Azhar was still strong. Okay, this is point number one. This was a time when Al-Azhar was still strong. Not necessarily saying that that's always the case today. Today it's a mixed bag. There's people who are still very strong. There's people who are a complete joke. Okay, there's, there's multiple things. Uh, but this was a time when it was still very strong. And it's being written about him. Murtada Zabidi, by the way, just to give you an idea of who's like writing this. He, he did a commentary on Ihya Ulum al of Imam al-Ghazali. It's like a massive gigantic work like he, he himself was a scholar of, of very high level and he's saying about the dardir that he was unequaled in his time in the rational and transmitted disciplines meaning like the logic philosophy so on and so forth as well as like quran sunnah so on i'm going to say it again if you have questions you can ask questions it's okay uh, there's a lot here 
There's a lot here. Um, if you want to save it for after the live stream stops, we can do that too. There's no problem. As always, when we teach, my point in teaching is not to force anything upon you. The point in teaching is to say, like, these are the things that I've come to. These are the things that I understand based on things that I've read and things that I've heard and people that I've sat with and so on and so forth. And, like, it's a free country. Like, it really is a free country. Like, alhamdulillah, you, you can agree, you can disagree, you can want to do it, you can not do it. Like, it's, like, you know, like, everyone has their own, uh, you, ha- you, every person has to make that choice for themselves. Right? Like, لا تزيروا وزيرتهم وزراء أخرى no one's going to carry someone else's burden in the day of judgment in front of Allah. No one's going to carry your burden for you. No one's going to carry my burden for me. If I didn't believe that these things were true at some level, I wouldn't teach them. And I definitely wouldn't live stream them and risk my reputation and being blacklisted in the community for teaching this. I hope you guys understand that. that this is very dangerous, actually. <laughs> what I'm doing right now is very likely to lead to some level of backlash, whether or not it gets to me in the end. At some point you're like This is our tradition Like you can disagree But you can't say You can't negate its existence In addition to his scholarly role Dardir was also taken by many As a spiritual guide And is regarded as a reviver Of the Khalwati order by some Imam Dardir eventually Would go on to establish A sub-order within the Tariqah And his own Zawiyah Funded by the Sultan of Morocco Muhammad III After being astonished At the astute character And generosity of a Dardir With the Sultan's son So what happened with this The story is not here What happened with this Is that there was a Sultan of Morocco He used to This in itself Is actually a really interesting point Think about this the Sultan of Morocco, every year, would send chunks of money to Cairo to support Al-Azhar and the institutions around Al-Azhar and the scholars of Al-Azhar. He's, he's the Sultan of Morocco. <laughs> you know, like, why would he do that? He would do it for the same reason that some random person in Southern California who's a multimillionaire would send a million dollars as a gift to Harvard. Because it's Harvard, we have to support Harvard. Like this is our this is our bastion of learning, right? So he's the Sultan of Morocco. He sends money every year to the people in, in in Cairo. And so what happened was his son went for Hajj. The Sultan's son went for Hajj. So he passes through Egypt. He goes to he goes to Arabia. He makes his Hajj. He comes back to Cairo. Everyone would stop on Cairo on their trip if they passed that way. So he would stop. He stopped in Cairo afterwards. He ran out of money. Okay. So now you have the son of the Sultan who's in Cairo and ran out of money. And this became like, it came to Imam Dardir. And Imam Dardir was like, this is crazy. His father sends us money every single year for us to, like, this child, the, the kid, not the kid, but this young man has more right to the money than I do. So he took the money that the Sultan would give him and he gave it to the son. And the son was fine and he went back to Morocco and, like, you know, alhamdulillah. When the Sultan heard about it, he was like, wow. And he sent the next year 10 times the amount that he would normally send to people like Imam al-Dardir. He sent to Imam al-Dardir 10 times the amount. So he got the money and he was like, alhamdulillah. He went and he made hajj. And then when he came back, he started this. Inst- he made his zawiyah, his little like space. Yeah. What year was that? This is, uh, this, this Sultan of Morocco died in 1790. So, Allahu alam, sometime between... Uh, he became the rector of the college in 1775, so probably like, probably somewhere in that period. Uh, but that's that's the story they say behind it. A notable aspect to a Dardir spiritual path and revival 
was that it brought together both scholars and students of sacred knowledge and the laity. His concern for the common man in his society was evident in his writings, which were always tiered to include material that could be easily read and understood by all the Muslims in his society. So like I said, if you take the original text of the Kharida, you could understand it with like a little bit of help. If, you know. And if you take his commentary on it, now you have to like actually be a student of knowledge. But a regular person could understand the, the first level of it. So he would tear things like this. And also he has um, the other one that Fuad, uh, Ustad Fuad taught. What is it? The Creed of, one, Creed of Oneness, Al-Aqidah Tawhidiyah. The Creed of Oneness, he taught it. It's in the Majlis uh, YouTube thing. Uh, evident in his writings. Imam Dardir also followed in the footsteps of his predecessors, Sheikh Saidi and Sheikh Al-Hifni, who commanded the respect and admiration of the ruling class and were not shy in publicly rebuking their injustices and unethical behavior. Imam Dardir was particularly admired for interceding on behalf of oppressed commoners who sought his aid against the ruling class. In fact, there are numerous accounts in Dardir's own works that offer social and political commentary aimed to push back on the injustices of the ruling class. This can also be seen in the famous historical chronicles of Abdurrahman al-Jabarti. Though he was not appointed the position of Sheikh al-Azhar, al-Jabarti famously not- notes that al-Dardir was seen as the Sheikh of all of Egypt. Al-Jabarti substantiates this position by noting that Imam al-Dardir, quote, would command to the good and forbid the evil, repelled what was vile, and strove to implement the truth for the sake of God. He did not fear blame or criticism, and he valiantly strove in his pursuit of good. This, fir- this general disposition regarding uh, Ad-Dardir is further supported by Jabarti in several accounts where he cites miraculous incidents seen at the hands of Ad-Dardir in confronting the injustices of the ruling class. Many of these incidents were witnessed publicly and became widespread in the community, affirming the high rank of the imam. Okay, I don't think it's mentioned here, so I'm just going to tell you one of these stories. Um, keep in mind that this is relatively recent, right? Like Imam Ad-Dardir is not that long ago. Um, trying to think of like so Al-Bajuri he knew Imam he, he was a contemporary of Al-Dardir and between like me and Imam Al-Bajuri is probably I think three people I might be mistaken but just to give you like it's not that many people between us and, and him so when you say like there were miracles that were seen by masses of people these are miracles that were seen by masses of people and told to masses of people, and it's only like four or five generations, and you'll get there. Um, six generations, maybe. Some of these people that are between us and him were very old, you know. So, uh, one of the stories is that he, when there was a new ruler, I forget which, which one it was, and this ruler, uh, so Imam Dardir, he was very famous that he wouldn't eat from anything that was doubtful. So if he had any reason to believe that the food that he was going to eat had any like possibility of not being halal for any reason, he wouldn't touch it. And he was known for this. And uh, it, it basically the ruler found out that Imam al-Dardir didn't want to eat his food because he, was, he believed that this ruler had basically stolen land and properties and stuff like that. So like anything that he serves to people has some amount of impropriety in it. Because he's stolen a lot of money from people, okay? So what does he do? What does this ruler do? These people are corrupt, you know? <laughs> the ruler, he, he calls this big gathering and he invites Imam al-Dardir. He says, you have to come have this meal with me with all of my people and the, the, you know, the ruling class, basically. 
And he's basically like, no, I'm not going to do it. So then what he does is he calls an invitation. I'm paraphrasing this story. Like, bear with me if there's one or two pieces that are not exact. I might, But the, you'll get the idea. He calls a, a bigger group of people and he invites all of this, not as senior scholars, students of knowledge, not as senior people, so on. Because for them, if they don't answer the invitation, he'll actually like kill them or torture them or prison them or do something else, right? He can't do it to Imam al-Dardir because he's too big. But these other people, he can do it, they, he can do it to them. So at first, he's like, and he invites him as well. He's like, now what are you going to do, you know? And so the sheikh now has to, in, he has to accept the invitation because he doesn't want all the students to get harmed, right? So now he comes to the invitation and the ruler's like, okay, you sit next to me. And he puts the food out and he puts, the food comes out and everyone starts eating and stuff and he doesn't eat. So <laughs> he just sits there. And then the ruler's like, aren't you going to eat the food? And he's like, I don't eat la, la akul ta'am fi shulhan. Like, I, don't, I can't eat something that has some sort of, like, doubt about it. He's like, are you saying that, are you saying that there's something wrong with my food and there's a doubt about it? You, if you're going to make this claim, then you have to have something that backs up your claim. Like, where's your evidence to this? How can you just say that about me? You don't have any evidence for it. Aren't you a righteous person and aren't you this and this? And, you know, this kind of stuff. Spiritual abuse. The other side is spiritual abuse. And he says, okay. And so he takes, he, and this was witnessed by masses of people. You know, he he takes a he he takes a handful of rice, and he picks up the rice in his hand, and he basically makes du'a that oh Allah, if there's something that's not f- okay with this food, then give us a sign for that. And he holds the rice in his hand, and as he's holding the rice in his hand, and he's kind of like holding it, blood starts to drip from it. Blood drips from the rice. Say like this: r- there's people's blood that was spilled by the oppression of this man for him to serve this rice right now. So the blood drips and then it's like, okay, this is, what can you say to that, right? All these people witnessed it now, so on and so forth. So this is one of the miracles about Imam al There's many of them that are narrated. Allahu alam. You don't have to, it's a very important subtlety. You don't have to believe in every miracle that is narrated. You do kind of just have to believe in the concept. You can believe in the concept of like, okay, some people have miracles. That's fine. You could be like, I don't know this story. I don't, I'm not, whatever. I'm, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about it. It's fine. But the concept, we have to believe in the concept in general. Anyways, there's many stories like this. Many of these incidents were witnessed publicly and became widespread in the community, affirming the high rank of the imam. Sheikh Abdul Halim Mahmoud, who was the former Sheikh Al-Azhar in the like 70s, he came here to Islamic Center of Southern California with Sheikh Al-Husri. There's pictures of it and stuff. It's pretty cool. Uh, in his biography, Imam al-Dadir mentions that you'll find no scholar of al-Azhar in disagreement about the saintly miracles, the karamat of Abu al-Barakat al-Dadir, by which God would open the closed doors of the oppressed of Egypt through the supplication of the Sheikh. Moreover, corroborating accounts related by Jabarti, Zabidi, Sheikh Yusuf al-Nabahani, and others provide further evidence that many of these miraculous incidents were testified to by hundreds of people. Sheikh al-Nabahani highlights this point in a section of his compendium on saintly miracles, Jamir Karamat and Awliyad, describing a Dardir as the son of experiential knowledge, the Gnostic of his era, and the object of consensus for all Muslims from all the different schools of thought as to his high rank, sainthood, wilaya, spiritual guidance, and overall benefit in every Muslim land. It's high praise. Okay. Nabahani, Ahl Beirut. You guys know Nabahani? Nabahani is buried in Beirut. 
Sheikh Yusuf al Nabahani. When I went to Beirut, we, we, on the way to the airport, we visited him. I have no idea where it is. Somehow someone knew, and like the taxi driver stumbled us there, and alhamdulillah, we found it. His written works. Imam al-Dardil wrote on a number of different religious disciplines, including Quranic exegesis, dialectic theology, jurisprudence, tasawwuf, prophetic biography, rhetoric, and a beautiful array of poems. The bulk of the work that he is most well known for, and to which the foundation of traditional Islamic studies in the contemporary period still relies heavily on, are within the three core disciplines of jurisprudence, theology, and tasawwuf. Among his major works are the following. When it's published, you can read that. <coughs> and we're in the end of the biography now. His death and legacy. Although Imam al-Dardir was engaged in many of the intellectual pursuits of his time and advanced to the highest levels of erudition, his main focus was always fundamentally a spiritual pursuit. As he so eloquently recalls of his own spiritual teacher, Sheikh al-Hifni. Uh, so this is interesting. And there's a, there's a typo here. I have to fix that. The magnificent Imam. So now Sheikh al-Dardir is talking about his Sheikh. And this in and of itself is extremely important. That teachers take from teachers. The people don't... The, there's, there's an independence that is gained over time, but one will always have people who are more senior to them. If you find like imams and sheikhs and stuff who don't defer to anyone other than themselves, even... Um, uh, and I'm not talking about dead people. Okay? <laughs> They'll refer to people other than themselves who have passed away. But I'm saying, they ref that don't refer to anyone other than themselves who's alive. Who's alive? This is not a good sign. Okay? And this was actually one of the major realizations that I had on a personal level when I left ICOI. Right? Was that I had really good peers, and they were all peers. And I didn't have people who were more senior than me that I could really look up to and get mentorship from and so on and so forth. Of course, there's Dr. Muzammal, there's other people around, but I wasn't like really close to them. Um, and so that, that, that was an issue. I'll say that about myself. Like that was an issue about myself and the way that I was doing things and the way that I was making decisions and so on and so forth. So now Dardir is talking about his sheikh, Hifni. The magnificent imam whom kings were in awe over was a magnanimous character whose enemies testified to his dignified demeanor and generosity. This quality was to the degree that everyone recognized that kings were unable to tend to their own affairs as much as he was able to. Those who sat with him always longed for more of his beautiful character and love, even to those who were invidious. I don't even know what that word means. Anyone know what that word means? Invidious? Yes. Can ask Siri? Yes. Siri, what does invidious mean? Invidious. Siri's like, that's not a word. Wow, it is a word. Okay. A comparison or distinction unfairly. Oh, Uncle Charlie chimed in too. Our, our, uh, our resident literature expert. <laughs> Envious. Okay. Um, jealousy, Cesar, also language expert. Uh, mashallah, we have amazing people in this community. Uh, where was I? Invidious. Where is Invidious? He was beauty, his face like the sun during the peak of the day, to the point that all who laid eyes on him were reminded of God, the Almighty, ever forgiving. The common people and the elite were blessed simply by gazing upon him, and they would flock to him, yearning for relief. 
He was the one who brought together the reality of the external sciences and the secrets of the divine, the interpreter of thoughts, as was seen by those who had traversed the spiritual path with him. He would cultivate his companions by gazing at them and serving them as a guide. This is interesting. Okay, I want you to think about that, that statement. This was a great scholar and spiritual master. So how did he teach his students? By looking at them and serving them as a guide. Not like, how do I say it? Like not by sitting there and lecturing them all the time and speaking to them and admonishing them and telling them, why did you do this, you do this, and shaming them and blaming them and all this kind of stuff. He would just be with them and serve them and look at them and pray for them. And this was how he, this was how he gave them spiritual training. Spiritual training is not the same as like uh, uh, intellectual training. It's different. It happens differently. I'll make a comment on this to probably my regret after the live stream ends, inshallah, if you remind me. Uh, (laughs) They revered him him in a way that you would not find amongst even heroic figures. In relation to this quotation, the former Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Sheikh Abdul Halim Mahmoud, said about Al-Dardir, if we recounted all of these qualities that were spoken of in relation to him, we would see that he too achieved these noble qualities that are so loved by God and his messenger. It is altogether fitting that Al-Dardir saw such remarkable qualities in his teachers whom he loved so, and sought to emulate seeking the prophetic way, he would likewise be sought after by so many for these same qualities. Dardir died in 1204 after Hijra 1786, and his funeral prayer was held at Al-Azhar Masjid, garnering a large crowd of people from all walks of life. His body was then buried nearby, and his zawiya, it's like right behind Azhar, in the street right behind Azhar, where he remains until the current day. His works remain a beacon of light for our time as we strive to gain an understanding and a manifestation that binds us to our holistic tradition. We pray his legacy of scholarship and service to the people live on in all those who inherit from the Imam their connections to the beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Amin. This is the end of the biography by Ustad Fuad. Um, there was something I was going to say about this. So I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. So we'll, not next Sunday. The Sunday after, we'll begin the translation. Next Sunday, there is no Sunday class. It is moved to Saturday. 5.30, doors come open. 6 o'clock, session starts. And Imam Zaid Shakir will be joining us next Saturday. Here, same place. And then the following Sunday, we'll resume, inshallah. This idea of like du'as being answered and so on and so forth. Some of you may have seen the post that I, I posted on Facebook. I don't know when it was. What day is today? Sunday. So it was last night about Sheikh Ali Saleh, Hafidhullah. Uh, there's a part that I didn't post yet about his wife, he, which who he would call a Sheikha. He would call her a Sheikha. And um, Sheikh Ali, we'll just keep it here. Okay. Sheikh Ali, uh, alhamdulillah, I didn't study with him a whole lot, a whole lot, but I did study with him. And we used to, he used to welcome us in his home. Um, which is in the area of Babzuwela, behind, you know, in the area of Al-Azhar. And his home was like very, very small, very humble. And, you know, someone entirely dedicated to learning and knowledge and worship and so on and so forth. And he himself was largely blind, is largely blind. And his first wife had passed away. And when he got remarried, he married this woman who we call Sheikha. I think her name was Aisha. Sheikha Aisha. And um, she was fully blind. Rahimahullah. She's passed away now. And uh, one of the students, he asked Sheikh Ali, he said, why did you, like you have special needs? 
when you chose to get married, why did you also marry someone who has special needs? Like, you know, like, how are you guys going to take care of yourselves, basically, you know? And uh, he said, I married her because I wanted to marry someone who would help me in coming closer to Allah and doing acts of obedience to Allah. And so I married the Shaykha. And the Shaykha had memorized the whole Quran. Like she, one time when we were sitting in his home, the living room was like, maybe the size of one of these rugs no i don't think so maybe like i'm trying to think like okay so we're on one couch and the table comes like just far enough for you to sit right and then there's another chair and there's the wall so that's the size of the room both ways just enough so like one person can sit in the table and one people we're sitting in the room one time and uh we're reading with him and his wife came home and she knocks on the door and like just for her to get in from the door to her room, which is like right there, is difficult with people because it's so small and like there's four people in the house. It's really crowded, you know, subhanAllah. And but she comes to the door and and he's like, like some of these people who are friends of Allah, all you hear from them is happiness. It's amazing. Like the guy has nothing. There's nothing in his home. He's mostly blind. He's largely disheveled because he's mostly blind. Like his home, the, 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 the stove is in the hallway. There's no kitchen. Like there's a hallway to the bathroom and there's a stove in the hallway. That's, that's his kitchen, right? And it's all joy, right? And she opens the door and she comes in and he's like, Ahlan, Ahlan, Ahlan bishaykha, Ahlan bishaykha. You know, he's like so happy she came, she came home, you know? And he's like, Ya Shaykha, Ya Shaykha, Nas Dawit min Amerika. He's <laughs> like, Sheikha, these students, they're from America. They're from America. Like, make dua for them, make dua for them, and they'll go back to their country and they'll teach people and so on and so forth. And then she's like making dua and she's trying to get to the room. And he's like, Yaftakhiru biha. So beautiful. Like, he's, he's like honored by her, you know? Uh, so he's like, He tells her, He's like, He's like, the Shaykha, she's memorized the whole Qur'an. She's memorized the whole Qur'an. She's fully blind. And like, the room is so close that she goes in her room and she's sitting there. And we're reading Tafsir. Tafsir and Jalalain for IOK students. We're reading Tafsir and Jalalain. And while we're reading Tafsir and Jalalain, if there's like a mistake in the ayah or something, she correct it from her room. <laughs> she can hear it. She's like right there, you know. She passed away, Allah yarhamha. The point is, this is someone who, like I saw with my own eyes, one of the stories about her is that she also was mustajab at da'wah, that her, when she would make du'a, her du'a would be answered. And that one time, one of her neighbors, uh, their, their son went missing. After they're panicking and they're trying to figure out what to do and whatever, and then they're like, you know what, we're going to go see the sheikha. So they go to the sheikha and they're like, our son is missing, can you please make du'a that he comes home and he's safe and so on and so forth. So she makes du'a and she's like, and she makes du'a and she's like, don't worry, your son is coming home today. And by the end of the day, his son had come home. And subhanAllah, there's people like this. The problem is we've seen so many people who are, who pretend like they're like that, that we stop believing that people like that actually exist. And the people who are actually like that, they're never going to pretend that they're like that. They're never going to make any claim. They're never going to, like, there's no way that when they came to her, she was like, oh, it's a good thing you came to me because, mashallah, my dua is answered, and now I'm going to make dua and your son is going to return. Never. 
right? It's never going to be that way. Another story they said about her was that she, although, like I mentioned, they were extremely poor themselves, right? And, and the sheikh was so generous. He would, like, invite us, charge us some outrageously cheap amount of money for, like, a two-hour class. And then he'd get so excited, he'd teach us for, like, four hours. <laughs> like, in the middle of the night, and he's just going, and, like, he's super excited. So she would give charity to these people that she knew that were in need, give them food and stuff like that. So one time she gave the food to someone and told them to give it to the people who need it. And the person came back and she said, did you give it to them? And, and they said, yes. And she said, did they eat it? And they said, yes. And she said, yeah, I know. Uh, and she said, okay, because I can taste it in my own mouth. Like she gave it to the, to the poor and she said, when, when they, I could taste it in my own mouth that they ate it. <laughs> Subhanallah. Radiallahu anhum. So this was uh, all to say that some of these stories about Imam al-Dardir, you know, they're there. And may Allah be pleased with him. Um, and, uh, you know, inshallah, Ustaz Fuad and uh, Shireen are going to Egypt in a couple of days. And they're going to convey the salam of the whole majlis to Imam al-Dardir, inshallah, uh, amongst their first things that they do inshallah once they get there and I don't know if Saysad is still there maybe he could do it now <laughs> he might be able to go pray Fajr there and, and give our salam if he's still in uh, Hussein so radiallahu anhum sallallahu alayhi wa ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam stop the live stream stop the recording